Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, a huge thank you to our Stephen ministry team and to our Stephen ministers. And again, welcome to Church at Home. If you've made it this far into our service and your kids are still in some semblance of order, you deserve a round of applause. Please stay with us. We're now going to get into God's Word as we continue our series called Portrait of a Disciple. And what we're doing is really looking at four essential components of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, or a disciple of Jesus. So we've considered intimacy with God as essential. We've considered mission as essential. We've considered community as essential. And today we are considering the matter of growth character growth, and and the transformation in our lives that happens as we follow Jesus, that this too is part of the package. And the matter of growth, this is a hard one for a lot of us. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you're tuning in and you're from a different faith, whether you believe in God or not, most people want to grow somehow in their lives. Most people want to be, you know, less selfish. They want to use their time more wisely. They want to be less controlled by their impulses and more loving and kind and better able to face life's challenges with composure and steadfastness. I mean, who wouldn't want that? And so that's what we're going to consider today. How does character growth happen? How does it take place in the life of the Christian? And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open your Bible now to Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verses 16 to 25. And we are going to hear what the Bible has to say, some very important things about character growth and transformation in our lives. So again, Galatians 5. 5, 16 to 25. We're going to read that together. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version, so if it's a bit different from your version, don't worry about it. Um, We're really going to dig into this text today. So Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16, says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do but if you are led by the spirit you are not under law now the work of the flesh is evident the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also 
walk or keep in step with the Spirit. This is God's word to us this morning. Can you join me in a prayer? Living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would come upon us and enable us in our weakness to understand and apply these words in our life. Do this for us. We open our hearts and our minds to you now to come and shape us. Show us Christ. Show us his way. And stir in us a hunger to follow him with everything that we have. I pray this in his mighty name. Amen. So very simply this morning, we are going to consider the main metaphor, the main image of this passage, and it comes out in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 22, it begins saying, the fruit of the Spirit is... And I just want to pause us there because we need to catch up with Paul's thought here. For him, every single person, when you give your allegiance to Jesus, when you place your basic life trust in him, uh, several things happen. You die into Christ and you're raised into newness of life in Christ. We really looked at that last week when we considered the imagery of baptism. But another thing that happens is the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity himself, is sent to take up residence in your life. We receive the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Did you notice the word spirit in the text? Seven times. So, so whatever this is about, the, the text is about what the Spirit-filled life looks like, what the life controlled by the Spirit looks like, what the life in the Spirit looks like. And now he says that the Spirit, when we're Christians, gets to work in our lives. He produces something. He produces what Paul here calls fruit. And then he goes on to describe the various qualities of that fruit, which if you're a Christian or not, you would agree these are good things. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so what we're going to do is unpack a couple important layers of the metaphor of the fruit of the Spirit. And the first thing that we need to understand is this, that when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, when it comes to character growth and transformation in your, in your life, God grows it. God grows it. You see, the Bible isn't just saying to us, okay, here's what the good life looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Here, here's what it looks like. Now go do it. You've got this. Run along now and make it happen. Not at all. There's way more going on here. I mean, the metaphor of, of fruit is so simple and yet so brilliant. And it sheds so much light on the dynamics of spiritual life and growth in the spiritual life. So get this. Our lives are portrayed as a garden, as this garden with incredible potential for fruitfulness and for beauty. And in fact, that's God's desire for you and for me. He wants your life to be full of all these things, love, joy, peace, patience, and all these virtuous qualities. But first and foremost, we need to recognize who makes them grow in us. Who makes the growth happen? I mean, Consider the tomato. 
If I were a much better gardener than I am, I might have gotten to the end of last summer and I might have been able to pick one of these tomatoes from my garden. Now, when it comes to this tomato, can I say, if I grew it, that I grew it? Say this tomato did come from my garden and I planted the seed and I I did all the things you need to do as a gardener and I harvested it. Could I say, hey, look at this tomato that I grew? I mean, what makes a tomato or a plant grow? You need sunlight. Do I have any control over that huge ball of burning gas millions of kilometers away? What else do you need? You need water. Do I have control over the weather and the rainfall? Sure, I can supplement, you know, with my garden hose, but even then, I didn't make the water happen. I'm just channeling it. I'm just using it and applying it. You need soil. Did I make the soil that this tomato grew in? Did I infuse the soil with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium? Not a chance. Natural processes like photosynthesis. Did I have anything to do with the plant's ability to take the sunlight and photosynthesize it into sugar and energy? I had nothing to do with that. And just like the tomato, the fruit of the Spirit, the character growth we want to see in our lives isn't something we ultimately grow. It's it's the work of God. It's the work of God in your life. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that's the first layer of the image, but the second layer immediately follows it, and it's this. That, that this doesn't mean just because God grows the fruit doesn't mean we have nothing to do with it. Because the second layer of the image is this. God grows it, but we tend it. God grows it, but we tend it. I mean, as I drive around Scarborough in the summer months, it's amazing to see uh, people with really tiny backyards doing incredible things. You see trellises and vines and even, you know, beans growing up and then growing across. It's like people have made a house out of plants. It's incredible. And seeing all these amazing gardens made us want to try our hand at it on a very modest scale in our own backyard. And we had this beautiful, glorious idea of what it would be like to grow some of our own produce, this picture of of harvesting juicy tomatoes and bright leafy greens. And what we quickly learned is that gardening is a ton of work. It's a ton of work. It takes time and it takes so much learning and even so much failure. I mean, you can plant seeds in soil and you can completely neglect it and six weeks later you might come back and maybe you'll have, you know, one sickly tomato or some scrawny peppers, but you'll also have what? Weeds. Lots and lots of weeds growing everywhere. And what will you also see? You'll see the devastation that that is caused by squirrels and raccoons and foxes, and they've pillaged and pilfered your garden. And no doubt, if you neglect your garden, you'll have something, but you won't have much. And you'll have a whole lot of other stuff you didn't want. See, to really garden takes work. And that's the second layer of the metaphor. God grows it. We have a responsibility to tend it. And so what does tending consist of? Fundamentally, he, here it is. 
to tend the garden, to, to, to tend the garden of our lives, means creating the environment. It means creating the environment where fruit can grow. I mean, that's what gardening is. You create an environment. You create the necessary conditions for plants to grow. You learn what they need. Sunlight, partial sun, shade. How much water do they need? How much space do they need? What kind of soil? What kind of fertilizer? Does it need to be pruned? In what way? You also start to learn the threats that affect your plants, like funguses. It's crazy how much learning you have to do to be a good gardener. And cultivating the garden of your life is no different. It takes work. It takes careful attention and planning. And here's the rub. Here's the difficulty that I think we moderners often run into. It's this. We live in a culture of instant everything. We prefer the easy fix in the way of comfort and convenient. I mean, pretty much every option you have, there's like the normal option and the instant option. You have normal coffee, where you can take 10 minutes and make your coffee in the morning, or you can have instant coffee. Which do most of us prefer? Instant coffee. It doesn't taste as good, but still we prefer it. I'm just showing my cards there. I'm still a French press guy. It takes a long time in the morning, but it's worth the wait. Trust me. But in our culture... I'm willing to guess that when it comes to things that require time and work and patience, we're not really often willing to go there because we want the instant quick fix. And when I said uh, that God is the one who makes the fruit grow, I'm willing to bet that at least some of them had the thought, some of us thought in our minds, okay, so why hasn't God just zapped me and made it happen? Why hasn't he just made me more loving or kind or dealt with this issue in my life? Can't he just like download that goodness into me and I don't have to work for it? How come he hasn't just done that? You see, lots of things in your life can change in an instant. I mean, good fortune can come upon you in a day. Tragedy can strike you and steal away your good fortune. A pandemic can strike at any time and change life as we know it. All of those things can happen in an instant, but in the matter of character change and growth, there are no quick fixes. There are no easy, comfortable, convenient solutions. For many of us, maybe when we first believed in Jesus, we took a huge leap forward, and we can definitely take those huge leap forwards in our life. I mean, when we encounter the grace of God for the first time, it's just so revolutionary, and it changes us. And you can often see this notable change in people's life. And God is free and sovereign to do what he wants to do in our lives. But let me tell you this, brothers and sisters, the ordinary way God works to transform our lives is the long road. It's the lifelong journey. In fact, that metaphor comes into our text. What does Paul say? Walk by the Spirit. The ordinary way God transforms our life is the lifelong journey of faith and obedience. And we got to give thanks for the times where it seems like God brought us from one point to another point in a hurry. But whatever God did in your life back then, when you believed in Jesus or at a significant juncture, it was only the tip of the iceberg. 
we have a crucial role to play in creating the environment in our lives for God to transform us. And so let's consider, how do we do that? Let's consider three gardening habits that we need. First habit is cultivating. We need to cultivate the garden. And cultivating is about positive action that we can take to nourish and energize and sustain spiritual growth and maturity. Engaging in things like worship or prayer or fellowship with others, confession, serving people, reading your Bible, going to church, giving to the poor, living generously, sharing Jesus with other people. And the biggest one I want to mention here is this, is learning. The best way to cultivate the garden of your life is to become a lifelong learner. And as we've considered over and over and over again, the word disciple means to be a student, an apprentice of Jesus. And we need to become learners because when we first enter the Christian life, we don't know how to cultivate the garden, just like I still don't know how to really cultivate a garden in my backyard. Even though I have read countless articles, I'm still learning. The best way to cultivate the garden of your life is to learn about God, who He is, what He's done, to learn His story, to learn the way of Jesus, His teachings, His deeds, and the way of His love and power. See, all of these things cultivate that environment in us, and the Spirit uses these habits to transform us in deep ways and often in ways that, you know, if you start to get preoccupied with your growth and start to look, okay, like, where am I growing? What's happening? That, that's missing the point because the kind of growth He does in us is often deep, and you look back five years ago and you're like, man, my life has changed, but in the moment, it's imperceptible. It can be like that mustard seed that just starts small and grows unperceived. We need the habit of cultivating. The second habit we need is protecting. Protecting. This is about guarding the garden of your life from predators outside. Now, before I started growing things in my backyard, I, you know, I was okay with squirrels and, and raccoons and foxes. Like, you know, I wasn't like enemies with them, but now that I've seen what they do to, you know, my radishes and my little plants that I want to grow, like, they've become a nemesis. And at times, it feels like this all-out war against them. You realize that nothing is going to grow unless I get some chicken wire. And I put chicken wire around my garden box, and I need to keep the squirrels out and the foxes out because things from the outside come in to, to, to pillage and to pilfer what you're trying to grow. And it's the same for the spiritual life. There are powers that work in the world that want to draw you away from God, and we need to guard against them. Now, there are also influences within us. There are also influences within us that seek to draw us away from God. And so our third habit is the habit of weeding. If we're going to cultivate the garden of our lives, we need to know how to weed out destructive things in our lives, attitudes, compulsions, behaviors, and appetites that choke out the fruit of the Spirit if you don't deal with them. Now, Paul warns of this in our text. He talks about what he calls the passions and desires and the acts of the flesh. 
And in the first few verses, he set up, did you notice that opposition between the flesh and the spirit, that there is this conflict that is happening. It's both in the world and it's also in ourselves. And when we experience that conflict between the flesh and the spirit, and in verse 19, he says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, or sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. This is not a full list. He's like, and all those other things, right? How long is the list? I don't know. It's really long. All these things that can grow in us, that want to choke out the fruit of the Spirit. Now, Flesh is a term that needs exploring, because you think, think flesh, that, that's weird. What does that even mean? Now, the Bible teaches us that the created material world is good. It's not bad. In fact, in Genesis 1:31, God has made the world, and it's like God has this moment of like stepping back and taking a breather, and he steps back and he looks at it all, and in Genesis 1.31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was not just good, it was very good. We live in a good, good world. But as the Bible tells us, as we keep going in the story, the world has been broken and twisted and infected with sin and evil. And the term flesh is Paul's way of talking about life under the power of sin. It's about life under the power of sin. And some of your translations in your Bible don't say flesh, they say the sinful nature. And that's a really good interpretation of that word flesh. The flesh is the sinful nature. It's not that your body is bad or that the created world is bad, but that sin has infected us. And one of the worst symptoms of sin in our world and in our lives is, is that it twists us to crave things that are destructive for us. And we get caught up in them. And the deeper we go into them, the more we realize that I'm actually not in control of my life, but that this thing has a power over me. And we know what the conflict between the spirit and the flesh feels like, don't we? Let me just cast some scenarios and see if, if any of them feel familiar to you. Maybe for some of us, you, you encounter this conflict in your relationship with your spouse. Sure, there's that part of you that loves him, but another part of you drives you to, to tear him down all the time or to demean him or just to complain about him to your friends all the time, and you have a hard time shaking the bitterness you feel. Maybe for some of us, it's our spending habits. Maybe your credit card debt is already crippling you. And you know, right? You know in your head, you shouldn't spend any more. But there's this compulsion. You need to have the latest and greatest thing. And it, and it takes control over you. You're on Amazon, and the, the, the one-button click is just so easy. And you keep buying stuff you don't need. Or maybe some of us are, are dealing with the, the compulsion that drive in us to feel wanted and loved, and we keep looking for it in these cheap sexual encounters where you use the other person and they're just using you, and you know it's tearing you apart, and yet you keep doing it. 
It's like a mood comes over you and you just go there in autopilot. And some of us, it's a daily wrestle with rage. So, so something happens and you just completely snap. You get into this state. You've got no control over yourself and you explode all over your car or your house. And then when the dust settles, you come to yourself and you wonder, who was that person? I mean, some of us are really trapped in a cycle of these agonizing moments of realizing that you're trapped and doing the very thing you know is killing you. And you feel powerless to change. And if you keep it up long enough, what you're going to do is just start to silence the agony by settling into this acceptance of it, of the way things are, because let's face it, if nothing's ever going to change, I might as well not feel guilty about it. And your shell just gets thicker and thicker, and you push people further and further away, and you leave behind you just this trail of wrecked relationships and emotional debris. I mean, that's really real for some of us today. And this text is telling you that there is hope. There is hope. Whether the garden of your life is just a complete mess, or whether it just needs some extra attention and tending, there is hope. And there's something very crucial that this text has to say to us as we're, we're up against it, these battles in our lives, as we seek to become gardeners in our life. And, and the key thing we need to know is this. For the Christian, we need to know the Christ who is alive in us by His Spirit. We need to know the Christ who is alive in us by his spirit. I want to draw your attention to two verses in our text. Verse 16 and verse 24. Verse 16 says this, So I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you, do you notice the parallel? You've got the spirit and walking by the spirit, meaning you won't gratify the flesh. And then you've got belonging to Christ, having crucified the flesh. And what's going on here is verse 24 is actually the grounds for verse 16. Because verse 24, belonging to Christ, meaning the crucifixion of the flesh, is describing something that has already happened. It's in the past tense. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you know that when you believed in Jesus, you didn't just send a faith-filled thought into the sky, but that something happened when you gave your life to him, something happened. His cross categorically rescued you from the hopelessness of a life ruled by the flesh and all of its friends. When you put your trust in Jesus, like we said, you died with him in his death. And do you know what also died there? The flesh. The sinful nature was crucified there along with its passions and desires. Yes, we celebrate the forgiveness of sins in the cross, but there's also the breaking of sin's power over you in your life. And now Jesus, Jesus has the first word and the last word over you because you belong to him. 
You belong to him. And now, you might say, well, my experience falls short of that. I get that. That's not lost on me. But from this day forward, it's time. It's time to put more stock in what God says about you than in your own experience. See, love sees something as greater than it is. God in his love looks at you and and sees the glory you. He sees the you finished, transformed, changed. And God's holy love is able to bring it about. And now because of the cross cross of Christ, you are forgiven, you're justified, you're sanctified and renewed in the very life of Jesus Christ that the Spirit is producing in you. I mean, that's the goal of all this growth. The goal is Christ himself in you, his life formed in you. I mean, one of the the most majestic verses in the entire Bible is Galatians 2.20, just a few chapters before this, and this is bedrock for understanding the way Paul thinks. And, and how he envisions the Christian life. In 2.20, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. He's talking about that experience, right, of, of putting your faith in Jesus. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life that I live, I live by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, that's the goal. The very life of Jesus taking up residence in us by his spirit, that everything he is, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, forbearance, self-control, would become ours. His life is the life we've always wanted. And because of his death and resurrection and the sending of his spirit, it is ours. And so in this moment, as we in Toronto prepare to head into another coronavirus lockdown for the next 28 days, you might be feeling so bogged down by your flaws, and it might seem just completely impossible that change could ever happen. Let me invite you to not use our difficult circumstances as an excuse to give up tending the garden of your life. Don't let our difficult circumstances excuse you from tending the garden. Remember that the Spirit who is at work in you is the life-creating, sustaining, transforming Spirit of the living God. He who is in you is greater than everything you're up against. Jesus Christ himself is alive in you. He's able to do the impossible. He can turn the barren, weed-infested wilderness into a garden, a place of love and joy and fruitfulness. And this can happen even now in the hardest time of our lives. And the call this morning from the text is this. We need to decide. Will we walk by the Spirit who is in us? Will we keep in step with the Spirit? Will we become gardeners and learn the habits of cultivating that environment where the life of Christ can be formed in us? Let's make that choice this morning. And for some of you, there might be a prior decision you need to make. 
Maybe you long for that transformed life, but you haven't given your life to Jesus, and let me say, everything you need, all the resources for it, are found in Christ alone. So trust him. Give your life to him. What are you waiting for? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come upon us now and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Make this word take on flesh in our lives. Empower us to walk in step with you, O Holy Spirit. Teach us what we need to know to cultivate the garden of our life that you might produce your fruit in us and that we might be a blessing, a fruitful, radiant people as we go into the rest of our week. I pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.